The Liberals Gun Corner, a proud progeny of the Gun Rights Radio Network, hosted by Cowboy T, San Francisco liberal with a gun. This podcast is always available at www.liberalsguncorner.com, and you can email us at cowboyt at liberalsguncorner.com. Cowboy T here. Welcome to episode 62. Well, the liberal here likes pretty much anything that goes bang reliably. It's a gun, right? <laughs> yeah, well, on the interwebs, I see all sorts of advice on, you know, what to buy. We talk about this sort of thing here from time to time. Reason is that when it comes to guns, well, opinions really are like those those nether regions. Everyone's got one, right? <laughs> Pretty much. It's basically a Ford Chevy Dodge thing. Happens between revolvers and semi-auto pistols. Happens in the world of rifles, <laughs> even within categories of rifles. Yeah, shotguns, same thing. That's pretty much you know, Remington versus Mossberg for the most part. Well, like I said, I like anything that goes bang reliably. Hmm. Turns out I also like Ford, Chevy, and Dodge trucks too, yeah, especially if it's any sort of diesel. I love diesels. Uh, anyways, I digress. So over the next couple of episodes, we're going to talk about a, a few categories of handgun, you know, an example of each and why that category is worth looking at. The particular uh, holy war that we'll be covering is... Uh, Tupperware guns, such as Glocks and Springfield XDs, you know, with their polymer frames, versus the old school all metal guns, you know, metal and wood, such as 1911s, Browning High Powers, Beretta 92s. This episode will cover the polymer guns, the Tupperware guns. <laughs> ah, Gaston Glock. Oh boy. You know, he really came up with something when he started his gun company. There's a reason, folks, that the Glock became uh, so doggone pervasive in police departments and, and European military forces. Uh, yeah, over in Europe especially, by the way, you've got some nationalistic practices in the in the various countries where they like to favor their own companies. Yeah, but Glock made some serious inroads even there. I actually read the story of how Mr. Glock did this. It's really interesting. His company came up with a design that used, oh, what, I don't, was it like 32 parts, something like that? That was dead simple compared to just about anything else out there. And field stripping one of those one of these Glock pistols, yeah, I've I've field stripped them quite a few times. I can have the gun field stripped, cleaned, and back together in five minutes, ready to rock. I actually timed myself doing this, and it was under five minutes. Yeah, and the thing shoots well. It's reliable. It was such a revolutionary design that, that American police precincts, I mean, they just had to have this pistol. And we all know that they did. In droves, they had them. Guess what? People who weren't cops, they wanted them too. You know, folks like you and me, I'm talking about them. They bought them in droves as well. And then the patents finally expired. Glock no longer had their monopoly on polymer-framed pistols anymore. Yeah. See, here in the United States, patents last for 20 years. You know, then anyone can use what's in that patent. And, as you might expect, other gun companies did just that. They made their own copies of Gaston Glock's design. Oh, yeah, sure. Springfield did it. Smith & Wesson did it. Ruger did it. Uh, several others did as well that I, I'm forgetting right now. Folks, you know, you can even build your own Glock-type pistol today. Yeah, you can do that. You don't even have to use a single part from Glock if you don't want to. It's just like a, the Ruger 1022 in that, that way. The, the aftermarket is enormous. It's absolutely, oh, how did President Trump put it? Huge. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. But either way, anyway, the aftermarket is enormous. It's absolutely enormous. Well, since the patents have expired, 
Glock's got some competition now in that space. And uh, it's some pretty good competition. There are, <clears throat> there are several brands of polymer frame gun to choose from now. I've tried the ones from Smith & Wesson, Springfield, uh, Ruger, and, and of course Glock. Every one of them shoots well, and I like nearly all of them. Yeah, the 9mm versions, they generally all have 17-round magazines. Uh, I, I think one of the models out there has a 19-round magazine. Yep. Yeah, but most of them have 17, just like Glocks do. For the more restrictive states like California and New York, they, uh, the companies also provide reduced-capacity magazines to comply with those states' laws. And just like Glock, all the gun companies are happy to sell you extra magazines for that extra profit. <laughs> Well, hey, they're businesses. Well, I have before me an example of just such a gun. Yeah. This happens to be Ruger's copy of the Glock design. It's called the SR series. Now, I'm not sure that Ruger still makes them. I think they've gone on uh, to a, a newer model. I think they call it the Ruger American pistol. <clears throat> but apparent, but there are still plenty of um, SR series pistols on the used market, and they're actually pretty good. The one I'm holding here is the SR9 which is their first model in the series. It's a 9mm uh, chambering. It's one of the rental guns of my local range. I actually bought one of these a few years after I got into the Second Amendment. This was after trying out a Glock 17, which is basically what the SR9 is Ruger's copy of. Yeah, they copied the Glock 17, just like the, the Springfield did with the XD, Smith & Wesson did with the military and police. I got to tell you, I liked the Glock 17 when I shot at it. It's a good gun. So why'd I buy the Ruger? Well, because the Glock was about $550 and the Ruger was $200 less money. <laughs> yeah, this thing cost me $349. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> but, but seriously, though, anything that applies to the Glock applies to its copies as well as far as functionality goes. Uh, the SR9 also shoots very well. It's just as easy to field strip and clean as a Glock is. Seriously, folks, these guns are really easy to maintain. Now, I'm not saying a 1911 is difficult. I have one. I know better. But it is a bit more involved. And for those of you who are 1911 fans, just like I am, you know this to be true. So let's not pretend it isn't. Okay? Uh, they're just These plastic guns are just that easy. And if you know how to field strip one of the Glock pattern pistols, you pretty much know how to do all the others too. Seriously, when I was working at the range, part of my job was being in the gun cleaning duty rotation. We range masters would rotate in gun cleaning duty, which personally I rather enjoyed. So throughout my time there, I cleaned every gun we had. Having had experience field stripping and cleaning my own SR9, I picked up uh, one of our rental Springfield XDs and gosh, I had that done in, what was it, basically 15 minutes. Yeah, seriously, 15 minutes. First time I'd ever done a Springfield XD. Only took that long. Then I... Um, did the same thing with the Glocks and the Smith & Wesson M&Ps. Same process. I had them done and ready to go at about 10 minutes each. And I wasn't rushing either. Now, there are a few questions that come up with these the, uh, the polymer frame guns. Uh, these are common ones that come up, um, and here they are. Number one, is this one of those plastic ghost guns that can slip by metal detectors at the airport? <laughs> we'll get to that. Don't worry. Number two. Since the gun has lots of polymer, it's a polymer frame, that means the gun is lighter. Does this mean that it's going to kick more when I fire it? Number three, will it last as long as an all-metal gun, say like a, a 1911 pistol? 
Let's deal with each one in its turn. We'll start with number one. Well, actually, come to think of it, there's one question that ought to come before even that. We'll call it question zero, you know, since I'm a computer guy, and we computer guys, we like to start counting from the number zero, you know, all that binary stuff. (laughs) And it's also probably the most important question and should be asked first. That question number zero is, can they shoot? Here's the answer. Oh, yeah, they can shoot. (laughs) The cops wouldn't love them so much if they weren't good shooters. I have yet to meet a Glock pattern pistol that doesn't shoot well. All the major gun companies make good ones. I've also seen some some home builds that not only shoot very well, they also look really cool, too. Yeah. So, yeah, they can shoot. Well, I sure wouldn't want to be on the business end of one. (laughs) Now, let's get to question number one. Is this one of those plastic ghost guns that can slip by the metal detectors at the airport? Answer. No, a Glock-type pistol will not slip past the metal detectors. No, of course not. That's just silly. It's even stupid. Seriously, seriously, it is. We briefly touched on this in the previous episode, number 61, the last one, about so-called ghost guns, properly known as home builds, by the way. Shortly after Gaston Glock came out with his new pistol, I'll tell you a little story about this. Uh, Well, Congress went nuts. Oh, my God, undetectable plastic guns. Oh, no. Yeah. The result was the Federal Undetectable Firearms Act of 1988, signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. Now, I need to tell you something about that act. The original version of that act, that was targeted directly at Glock's new pistol, the Glock Model 17. The act, as it was originally written, would have made that pistol illegal. Yeah, I know, right? Crazy. Nuts. But that was the actual target. It took Glock some doing to educate these attorneys in Congress, because that's what most of the representatives and senators are, they're attorneys, who, by the way, should have known better that there's no way a Glock pistol could ever possibly uh, slip past a metal detector. So, fortunately, Congress modified that bill so as to not make these pistols illegal, because that would have been stupid if they had. It's a good design for a pistol. The cops, the cops, they love them. And so do lots of other gun owners. Well, anyway, the, the bill got modified to account for the truth about these pistols before being signed into law. So, no, it's not an undetectable gun at all, no. They show up nice and bright on the detectors, I assure you. Second, second question. Since the gun has lots of polymer, it's lighter. Does that mean it's going to kick more when I fire it? Well, answer, yeah, a little bit more, you know, laws of physics and all, sure. But not that much, really. It's not that, it's really not that much more. It's really not that bad. My wife compared a a Ruger SR-45, another plastic gun, and a Springfield 1911 a few years ago. The SR-45 is Ruger's copy of the Glock 21 in 45 ACP. The Springfield 1911, naturally, was also in 45 ACP. Duh, it's 1911. She could feel the difference. Well, so could I, actually. But it wasn't a huge difference. It really wasn't that big. Also remember that a lot of people carry these pistols. Whatever it is they buy, they carry them. One of the nice things about polymer-framed guns, and any cop will tell you this, is that you're carrying less weight. 
Now, I personally don't mind the additional weight of, say, I don't know, an all-metal Beretta 92, which the cops used to carry before Glock pretty much took over the police market with its Model 17. It used to be the Beretta 92. But some people are more sensitive to the weight difference. And if you're one of those people, you're going to appreciate the weight savings after a whole day carrying that lighter pistol. (laughs) Oh, and speaking of carry... There's an interesting topic here. Yeah, these gun makers make smaller versions of their plastic pistols, too. Yeah, Springfield makes the X, the XDS, which I've fired. I've tried it out. It's pretty good. Uh, Smith, and Me- Smith & Wesson, rather, makes the, uh, the MMP shield, the military and police shield. Glock makes, well, quite a few models. <laughs> Ruger makes the LC9, and I think also they, I still think they make the LCP. All of these can fit in a purse, a pants pocket, or a coat pocket, or a jacket pocket, something like that. They're pocket guns. This way you can be, you know, nice and discreet if you choose to carry. I've always believed that discretion is the better part of valor anyway, but especially with with carry, but that's just my personal opinion. Anyway, the lighter the gun, the easier it is to carry, so these polymer guns really are nice for that. Now, the third question. Will they last as long as my granddad's 1911 from the war? Honestly, I don't know. I really don't. Polymer frame pistols have only been around since the 1980s. You know, that's just, just over 45 years now. Yeah, so that's a good long time. You know, 45 years is not bad. But let's face it, 1911s have been around since, well, 1911. <laughs> and they really got popular after World War I. Yeah, there's an old Marine I know who has his father's World War I 1911 pistol. It continues to run great. Uh, this, this old Marine, he fought in the Korean War, and he's still with us. He's in his 80s. Yeah, Uh, his pistol continues to run great. So uh, we just haven't had enough time to know how long the plastic frame guns will will last compared to the metal ones, uh, one of which I just told you about is now, what is it? Gosh, it's, what, over over 100 years old now? Yeah. So we haven't had 100 years yet. But I can tell you this. I haven't seen some of the... Excuse me, I have seen, I have seen some of the early Generation 1 Glock 17 pistols at the range. These things are now over 40 years old. Remember, they came out in the 1980s. They still go bang. They still shoot well. They still hit bullseyes. And they still shoot reliably. So, you know, it's looking pretty good for these plastic jobs as far as longevity. So, so what do I think of this Ruger SR9 in front of me? There's the question. Well, I'd certainly put it in my list of recommended pistols, no question. Even though they don't make them anymore, uh, at least to my knowledge. Uh, if you find a good used one, yeah, by all means, buy one. It's easy to shoot. It's easy to reload. It's easy to maintain. It's reliable as heck. You know, all that good stuff. And it's affordable. Well, actually, all those things I just listed, they're true of most of the Glock pattern pistols. It's not just Ruger's. It's Springfield's, etc. I know things are you know, kind of out of whack right now because of the gun rush last year. Yeah, I know. But normally, the polymer frame guns are reasonably affordable. Smith & Wesson came out with a really ergonomic design for their pistol that uh, a lot of people do like. And that includes their pocket version, the Shield. Yeah. Among small carry pistols, I really like that one. I like the Shield a lot. And uh, one of my favorite, my favorite plastic pistols is the Glock 21 and 45 ACP. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a 1911 guy, and I like this Glock. (laughs) The grip is just a perfect fit for my hands, and that includes under recoil, which matters a lot. For me, it's just very easy to shoot. 
So is, by the way, Ruger's SR45, uh, Ruger's copy of the Glock 21. I like that one a lot, too. Some of the Army guys that come to the range, they love the Springfield XDs, and I can't say I blame them. There are reasons these plastic guns are so popular, and they're all good reasons. Next time, we'll talk about the metal guns. Uh, I should say the all-metal guns. But right now, we're going to switch gears a little and discuss the NRA. Yeah. They've been a news topic for uh, some time now because they're having some problems at the moment. And they're actually pretty serious problems. You know, I really don't... I can't say that I like the NRA as it is right now. But I think we need them or someone like them. Believe it or not, I actually think the NRA, despite that I don't particularly like them, is actually worth saving. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) What the heck? You know, has the liberal here really got off the deep end? (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about that next. As soon as we get back from the break, there's a lot to come. back. And now we're going to deal with a very touchy subject here on the Liberals Gun Corner. We're going to talk about the NRA. (laughs) Well, pretty much everyone who follows the Second Amendment has heard of the National Rifle Association. Yep, the NRA. Duh, of course. (laughs) We also know they're experiencing, um, well, shall we say, some troubles at the present moment. Looks like um, some anti-Second Amendment activists in New York, one of them being their their current governor, Andrew Cuomo, along with a bunch of his cronies like the state attorney general, Letitia James, are going after the NRA and trying to bleed them dry with legal fees. Yeah. It's no secret that New York, both New York City and New York State officials, have never liked the NRA. Now, how come the state of New York can go after them? Why can they do that? Well, it's because the NRA's headquarters may be in Fairfax, Virginia, but they're actually incorporated in the state of New York. Uh Uh-huh. Well, now it seems those officials might actually have a legal case against the association. And believe you me, folks, they're milking it for every bit that they can. According to the legal documents, uh, looks like the top bosses have been using NRA membership funds to line their own pockets. Uh-oh, or as Astro would say, rut because that's definitely a no-no. And that's really a shame, too, because the NRA actually has the potential to be a major force for good. They have the potential to be the nonprofit version of what the Swiss government is for its citizens. There's so much potential there, and we need that voice, not just for political lobbying, by the way, but also for firearms education. We need that sort of thing. And that's why I think the NRA actually matters and why it's actually worth saving. 
Yeah, even with their faults. And believe me, they got some pretty big faults. It's actually worth saving. Here's why I put it that way, worth saving. It's because recently a judge in Texas told him, "Uh uh-uh, nope, sorry, can't declare bankruptcy just to try to get away from the case against you in New York. Not going to happen. And personally, I think the judge was right. If organizations can do that, then we'd have a, a major problem. And now, though, as a result of that, the NRA is facing a very real problem. They might actually get dissolved. That's right. We're looking at dissolution here, folks. And that would not be good for several reasons. So we're going to talk about that and what the NRA can do to save itself. It's going to take a lot of work, a whole lot of work. But if they do it right, they can come out even stronger than they had been. If they do it right. Even if they do get dissolved and they somehow reform in another place. And in such a case, I hope they would reform. Then it's the perfect time to fix the worst parts of the association and really get it right. Oh, but Cowboy T, come on. You're a liberal. You're a racial minority. Why the heck would you care about the freaking NRA? Shouldn't you be dancing in the streets if they were to actually get dissolved? I've gotten asked this over the years. It's a fair question, especially now. And the answer is, no, I wouldn't be dancing in the streets about that. See, I used to be a member of the National Rifle Association. Yeah, it's true. I was an NRA member. First joined in early 2009. I was a member until early 2012. And then I rejoined for a year in 2017. Well, actually, no, 2016, excuse me. So I got to take a look at the organization as a member. Yeah, as a member. We're going to talk for a moment about the NRA and the troubles that they're dealing with right now. But as we all know, it doesn't do a darn bit of good to mention someone's troubles without also offering a way to fix them. And we will do both. Turns out we need to. We do know so far We do know so far that the NRA top bosses, especially Wayne LaPierre, the CEO and executive vice president, have been living large. Oh, yeah. Mr. LaPierre himself is said to get a total compensation package in the seven figures. It's somewhere between a million dollars a year and three million dollars a year. I've heard um, anywhere in between there. Now, unless you're the CEO of a large tech company, that's a whole lot of money. It sure is to me. Seven figures a year? (laughs) Ha-ha. Nice work. I wish I could get it. Okay, fine. So he's got a nice fat compensation package. Now, let's just leave the ethics of that out of it for the moment. As long as it's legal, then there should be no legal trouble. Is it a good idea? Oh, probably not. No. (laughs) But it could very well be legal. I'm not a lawyer. I know I don't play one on TV either. Nope. But there's probably a legal way for that to happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't uh, wouldn't have been doing it. However, uh, if you're misdirecting association funds to line your pockets, though, that's big trouble. And that's the charge against the NRA and their top bosses. Fraud. The result. The NRA um, wanted, wanted to declare bankruptcy and reincorporate, I believe, to Texas. I don't know, maybe they thought that doing that puts them out of New York's admittedly hostile legal jurisdiction. But even if the the, the judge hadn't given them that recent smackdown, 
they still might not have been out of hot water at the federal level since, guess what, the NRA gets money from people all over the country. And with a shotgun Joe Biden presidency, I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't federal charges and legal action that result result from all this. Now, that sounds pretty bad, right? I got news for you. That's not the worst of it. Yeah, I know it sounds pretty bad, but there's something else that's even worse. The most damaging thing that this has done is it's gotten a lot of NRA members and donors wondering if they should keep giving to the NRA. It's shaken the confidence of a lot of the membership. Yeah. And and uh, you know what? I get it. You know, if I think my membership dues are being misused, then I'm going to wonder too, hey, should I, be, should I keep giving them my hard-earned money? And that's the biggest threat, I think, that the NRA is currently facing. Out of all the threats, I think that's the biggest one. Oh, yeah, sure, you got the diehards. We'll stick with them no matter what. Yeah. And then there are the rest of us. I freely acknowledge that I joined the NRA after the election of President Barack Obama because, like a lot of you, I was afraid that there would be new gun bans. Remember, just like right now in 2021, just like today, in 2009, it was a Democratic president with a Democratic House of Representatives and not just a Democratic Senate, but a filibuster-proof majority Democratic Senate. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, they had 60 Democrats in the Senate at that time. And guess what? That's enough to stop any filibuster on party line. Straight party line, you can stop a filibuster in its tracks. So yeah, the threat of more gun restrictions was actually very real. It was no joke. So I joined for three years. With the exception of the 2016 to 2017 year, I did not renew after 2012. And that's because of something they did. I'll get into that in just a moment later on because it's actually pertinent to the problem that the NRA is having right now with getting new members. We all know there were about 8 million new gun owners last year, but not very many of them joined the NRA. Now, since I'm originally from California, I still do frequently uh, visit the CalGuns website and I participate in their forums as Cowboy T. One of the things I see all the time on that forum by NRA members is, if you're a gun owner, you need to join the NRA. I asked him, well, okay, how about, the, how about the Second Amendment Foundation or something similar like that? And their response is always, well, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, you can join them too. But you got to join the NRA because they're the big dog, the 800-pound gorilla in the halls of Congress compared to everyone else. Well, that 800-pound gorilla seems to have been on a diet recently because they've obviously lost a lot of weight. (laughs) And that means they've lost a fair amount of lobbying power in the halls of Congress, too. Uh Uh-huh. Now, back in 2009, after Obama's election, the NRA still had a fair amount of political clout. No question about it. And I think that's why the Democrats, even with a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, And that means they could have rammed anything they wanted through. I think that's why they didn't actually pass any more gun control. Instead, they left it to the president. In that case, of course, President Obama to do what he could through executive branch regulations and such. You know, executive orders, that sort of thing. Which means not very much. He couldn't do very much. See, the members of Congress were afraid that they might lose their own elections if they went forward themselves, say. (laughs) So they didn't want to risk it. (laughs) However, that was 2009. This is 2021, 12 years later. 
the Democrats are now very seriously working on pushing gun control through and getting it to President Biden's desk for signature in the law. Clearly, things have changed, and the Democrats are now a lot more willing to go forward with this. Clearly, the NRA is having more difficulty these days. So, what do you do when you're having trouble like that? Well, two major things come to mind. Number one, you clean up what you need to clean up internally. And that, by the way, may include a total clean sweep. Number two, after you do that and make it clear that you've done that, you have a membership drive. I think the NRA needs to do both of these things. Both of them. Now, I've taken the NRA's basic pistol course, a basic rifle course, and both the metallic cartridge and shotgun cartridge reloading courses. And I can highly recommend all of those courses by certified NRA instructors. I really do believe in that. Yeah. Those who choose to become gun owners, um, first off, that's a good thing. Uh, Welcome to the uh, fraternity slash sorority that we are. Second, I really do believe a good course like that is good for you. It sure was good for me. Now, should it be legally mandated? Huh, no way. It's like literacy tests for voting. We should never mandate it legally. But you really ought to take the firearms courses, because uh, especially basic pistol or basic rifle, because they teach you a whole lot. And that's really the core foundation of the National Rifle Association. Yeah, it's actually education. That's their real core foundation. That was their original goal. To, to educate the American rifleman on good marksmanship practices. And that is a very good thing. But I know a lot of people who hear NRA and spit on the ground. And I don't blame them one bit for doing that. Yeah, I'm serious. I don't. Well, how come, Cowboy T? Well, to answer that, we got to deal with those two things that the NRA needs to do. we got to deal with that. And so let's do it. Still with number one first, the bit about uh, cleaning up what they need to clean up internally, because that's a big deal, folks. Number one needs to happen before number two, the membership drive, can possibly be successful. Now, obviously, I'm not a lawyer. I just told you that. I don't even play one on TV. And there are a lot of things that a lot of us are not privy to with this case. So all I can go on is what I've read. And from what I've read, there's at least the appearance of misuse of association funds. That right there should be reason enough for cleaning house. And yes, that includes both Wayne LaPierre and Chris Cox. Just the appearance of misusing association funds should be grounds for dismissal or resignation. This is especially so because the NRA is in fact a non-profit organization. Yep, that's right. The NRA is a nonprofit, folks. It's one of those 501c Section 4 uh, tax-exempt nonprofit corporations. Uh-huh. There are certain things you cannot do in a tax-exempt nonprofit. There needs to be a full, straight-up investigation into any wrongdoing. It should not, obviously, be by the partisan gun grabbers from New York. No way. Uh, rather, the investigators should be nonpartisan, no political agendas. Well, at least as much as we can get since, well, everyone's got some sort of agenda. So the backgrounds of the investigators would need to be looked at pretty seriously as well. Uh, that is to say, uh, no Democrat or Republican partisans. 
Neither one. And if that investigation shows that there was indeed wrongdoing, then those responsible should face the appropriate legal sanctions. Pure and simple justice. No favoritism. None of that uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge business. None of that. Just straight up justice. If there was, in fact, wrongdoing. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. Uh, Even if there was no actual wrongdoing, there remains the appearance of it. So there needs to be major changes uh, of leadership at the top. This is to take care of the folks who say, where there's smoke, there's fire. And there's merit to that statement, folks. Uh, And the new people, the uh, fresh blood, as it were, if you will, uh, those people need to have unimpeachable reputations. (laughs) They need to be so clean. You don't call Mr. Clean. You call Mr. Clorox. (laughs) They got to be that clean. And those people do exist. Yeah. My guess is that, well, just one example, Uh, a guy I personally have admired for years, uh, retired football legend and former U.S. Representative Steve Largent is probably one of those folks. Now, I may not necessarily agree with him politically, but I do believe he is an honest person. Here's another. Another might be uh, former Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer. Yeah. Or former, former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura. All three of them are knowledgeable about firearms, and none of them believe in gun bans. Yeah, they would be fine as leadership. People like that do exist who are qualified to run an organization of the NRA's size. That's one way the NRA's got to clean up internally. The other way they got to clean up internally. We'll discuss that as soon as we get back from the break. We'll see you in a moment. back. We're talking about the NRA and what it needs to do to come back from its current troubles. We just went over one way the NRA's got to clean up internally. Now we're going to talk about the second way. Yeah, number one is actually a two-parter. It's got a part A and a part B. We just talked about part A. Now we're going to talk about part B. Now this is one of those subjects where people get really emotionally invested. I got to warn you, okay? This is probably going to be especially true of my white conservative brothers and sisters who happen to also be NRA members. Just as I ask my liberal brothers and sisters to hear me out first before they judge, I am now asking that same thing of you. Just hear me out first. We had pretty much an entire episode very recently dedicated to how an organization near and dear to a lot of liberals, I'm talking about the Democratic Party, has some fairly serious ugliness that, as liberals, we need to deal with and fix. That was episode 59. In episode 61, the one just previous to this one, this is episode 62, that one took apart a Democrat politician from my own home state, my home state, who spews crap against the home-built firearm, calling it by the negative propaganda term, Ghost Gun. Ghost Gun. Yeah, y'all remember that? Yeah. So I'm not afraid of that either. I know no one likes hearing that their baby is ugly, but you can't fix things unless you face them head on. 
This time, it's members and supporters of the NRA that need to fix a certain uh, ugliness that their baby has. And it's critical that they do so. This is an ugliness that, say, the Virginia Citizens Defense League, or VCDL, goes to a fair amount of effort to avoid. And generally, they do a pretty good job. That's why I've been a member for over 10 years and counting. And speaking of membership, I've heard and seen, oh gosh, uh, so many NRA members say, if you're a gun owner, you really need to join the NRA. They get upset that a lot of gun owners don't do so. And then they, they either wonder why, or they get dismissive and, and even act like jerks when talking about gun owners who don't join the association. Not a good look, folks. Seriously, don't do that. And that kind of behavior doesn't address the, the actual problem here anyway. And that's unfortunate because, like I mentioned before, ugliness in one's baby generally can be fixed. But first you've got to acknowledge it in order to do something about it. That's what we're going to do here. We're going to acknowledge it. And then I'll tell you what needs to happen to fix it. I have here in my hand a copy of one of the NRA's magazines. Yeah, you hear all those lovely pages? Hmm. It's called Shooting Illustrated. It's from March 2017, so oh, just a touch over four years ago. It was from the last time I was a member. I kept this particular magazine around because, well, I, I liked an article in it about a certain 1911 pistol. It was a pretty cool article. You know, for the most part, the magazine does talk about various guns. You know, old guns, new guns that people use or that they can buy now. Okay, that's pretty cool if you're a firearms enthusiast, like I am. You know, sort of like car magazines for folks who are into cars. And yes, it's got ads in it for various firearms-related products and, and other things. <laughs> it's also got a section called The Official Journal. This is where they put letters from the top bosses at the NRA. Yeah, it's a preface to the magazine to the until you get to the before you get to the meat. Yeah, you'll see pieces from you know Wayne Lapierre, Chris Cox, and um, whoever the president of the NRA happens to be. They rotate those a lot. At the time, it was a, a fellow named Alan Kors. The more well known of these these three are, of course, Wayne Lapierre and Chris Cox because they've been there for many many years running now. Mister Cox is the executive director of the NRA, of the NRA's uh, Institute for Legislative Action. Uh, that's their actual political lobbying arm. Uh, Chris runs that. Well, he wrote this article in the magazine about policing. Given what we now know happens quite a bit, because it's now actually getting reported on, this is a timely topic. He wrote this piece uh, shortly after the shooting of Philando Castile. Let's go through a few things that Chris says. Quote, the downward trend in violent crime over the last 25 years has been nothing short of remarkable. FBI uniform crime reporting data showed that in 2015, the nation's violent crime rate was less than half of what it was in 1991, which was a, a record high. Just as stark has been the decline in the murder rate, which in 2012 stood at half of that of, uh, or was it 2015? I think it was 2015. Yeah, started, uh, stood at half that in 1991. Uh, close quote. Okay, so crime's been steadily going down across our nation. That's obviously a good thing. Uh, yeah, this, this was before 2020, so yeah, it was at the time going down. Chris attributes the drop in crime to, and I will quote him, aggressive policing 
and uh, also the use of stiff sentences to incarcerate criminal offenders. Then he goes on to say the following, quote, Despite the success of this approach, in recent years, there has been an increasingly concerted effort to curtail vigorous enforcement of the law, which unfortunately reached all the way to the Obama White House. Activists, some funded by anti-gun billionaire George Soros, seized upon a handful of regrettable police-citizen encounters to undermine the vital work of the law enforcement community at large. Close quote. Uh-oh. Right there, we have a problem. What he's talking about is, of course, the killings of uh, Julian Alexander, Oscar Grant, Tamir Rice, John Crawford III, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Philander Castile, and others like them, all black men by white police officers. That's really what he's talking about. In some cases, the cops lied, planted evidence, and or tried to confiscate evidence showing their own improper behavior. Yeah. And Chris Cox, the executive director for the NRA's lobbying arm, reduces these terrible events to, and I quote him, a handful of regrettable police citizen encounters. Wow. Uh, and it's important to point out here, by the way, that I didn't even mention the non-fatal, regrettable police citizen encounters that didn't end up with someone getting shot without proper cause. Yeah, I'm talking about people like uh, Robert Wilkins. Well, I guess I really should say his honor, Judge Robert Wilkins, since he's a judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Washington, D.C. court. He got pulled over and held at gunpoint with his family, including his kids in the car. The guy's a freaking judge. He's part of the legal system. Hello? And he hadn't done anything wrong. So why'd he get pulled over? Why'd the cop pull him over? Because he had just uh, looked suspicious. Not cool, folks. Not cool at all. And dismissing that as a regrettable police citizen encounter. That's just as uncool. I mean, this even happened to Emmett Smith. <clears throat> yeah, you know, Emmett Smith, the football running back legend for the Dallas Cowboys. That guy, him, happened to him in Dallas, where he played football for years. In Dallas. Happened to Sir Mix-a-Lot, too. In Seattle, where he's from. He's born, raised, and well-known. They pulled him over, assuming that his Lamborghini had just had to be bought with, uh, you know, drug money. Uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot is... Filthy rich, folks. Filthy, stinking rich. And that's from smart money management. And as he himself puts it, properly monetizing my rap music. It means, you know, enforcing your copyrights and all that other thing. Licensing your music. He reports that his mega hit, Baby Got Back, you know, I like big butts and I cannot lie, you other brothers can't deny, that one, that just by itself has made well over $100 million over the years. Just that one song by itself. Over $100 million. Just the one. That doesn't even count as other pieces. Huh. Oh, yeah. He can afford that Lamborghini legitimately. So why pull him over if he wasn't breaking any traffic laws, which apparently he wasn't? Hmm. This is the kind of thing that Chris Cox minimizes and dismisses by referring to a handful of regrettable police citizen encounters. Now, this article is a good you know, page and a half of small type. That's why I had a little trouble reading that date. 
uh, that 2015 date there earlier. So I won't bore you with the whole thing. I won't bore you with the whole article. But I can tell you, the article does go on to praise to high heaven the approach of what he calls aggressive policing and a strong focus on incarceration. Well, maybe that's the problem, that aggressive policing. You know, as we've seen recently with that army lieutenant at the gas station a few weeks ago here in Virginia. Yeah. You know how, you know, how, the, how the police drew their guns on him. And this army lieutenant, by the way, was in his military uniform. Yeah, guy was in uniform. There seems to be a use deadly force first and you know, let people ask question, questions later mentality among too many of the police officers out there. The situation with former officer Derek Chauvin, you know, the guy who choked George Floyd to death after Floyd was already restrained. Well, I guess that's just one of those uh, regrettable police citizen encounters to Chris Cox. Remember, this guy's not just a rank-and-file member. He's the executive director of their lobbying arm. At his level, he really does represent the entire organization. You've heard of dog whistles? Chris used just about all of them here in this article of his. I've also read articles in previous editions of NRA Magazine and magazines uh, reminiscing about, and I quote, the good old days of manifest destiny. Oh, God, really? Freaking seriously? The good old days of manifest destiny? Oh, my God. Um, folks, have I mentioned that unlike Senator Elizabeth Warren, I actually am Cherokee Indian? Yeah. Yeah, the Trail of Tears, folks. Hello. Yeah. And uh, then there are the ads for the pro-Confederacy merchandise. Yeah, complete with the stars and bars. I saw those in almost every issue. These ads, uh, they say, celebrate the pride and honor of the South. Ouch. That's all I can say to that. Ouch. Those kinds of repeated things, that's why I didn't renew in 2012. Yeah, I gave him another shot for the 2016 to 2017 year. You know, hey, I do believe in second chances, folks. Look, if George Wallace of Alabama, you know, the guy that stood in the doorway, if he could turn around, anyone can. I, I believed in a second chance, so I gave it to him. And you just heard what their top bosses were still saying, still are. Seems there wasn't much, if any, improvement. Folks, when an organization shows a history of having these sorts of attitudes, and I understand some of you are not comfortable hearing this. Like I said, just hear me out. My, well, I'll, I'll just say, I'll just tell you this. I'll just remind you. My dad was a gun owner. I've told you all that many, many times here on the Liberals Gun Corner. Out of necessity, he was a gun owner during, during, during most of his lifetime. That gun that he used to use, that he used to carry with him, that gun now protects me and my wife. My dad is a big part of why I became a firearms enthusiast. So dad was definitely pro-gun ownership. He was pro-carry too. He was all for it. And he also despised the NRA or anything that even looked like it. Huh? You ask. Look at it from his perspective. Given what you've just heard, it shouldn't surprise you. You want to change that? Do you? 
If your answer is yes, then good. So do I. I want to change that too. I want to change the minds of people like my dad about the NRA too. To accomplish that, well, that dog whistling has got to stop. One big reason why I didn't renew my own membership in 2012 is what they did, what the NRA bosses did with the Disclose Act. Those dog whistles, though, that was the last straw. And, and that particular straw, as you might imagine, was pretty darn heavy. Now, obviously, it's not a, an association that has people like my dad or me in mind. Oh, yeah, maybe Taylor Swift. Yeah, her. Maybe Susanna Hupp. Maybe her. Maybe Ted Nugent. You know, maybe him. Maybe Garth Brooks. But not Jamel Roberson, an armed security guard. Yeah, you know, one of those good guys with a gun that you see in the armed citizen section of the NRA's magazines? Not him. Yeah, there was, he's, he's a security guard. Yeah, he's armed security guard. Well, there was this bad guy, turned out to be a white guy, as it, as it happens, uh, that uh, busted out his gun and started threatening to shoot people. Well, Mr. Roberson, the security guard, using his gun, stopped this bad guy. He didn't shoot the bad guy. He didn't have to. He just got him to drop his gun and get on the floor prone. Yeah, Mr. Roberson then held the bad guy for the police. You know, hey, sounds to me like he was doing his, his job as a security guard for this event. You know, good on you, sir. When the police got there, they shot Mr. Roberson, the security guard, not the actual bad guy. Not a peep from the NRA for this good guy with a gun. Total silence. Not a word. Why is the NRA like that? Why wouldn't they speak up about, you know, this this situation? It's so clear and cut. It's it's cut and dry. Why wouldn't they be trumpeting Jamel Roberson? Why aren't they willing to speak out against the uh, the atrocity that happened to that army lieutenant either? Why are they so reluctant to defend good guys with a gun? If it's someone like like Mr. Roberson. Well, I recently learned that the NRA gets a fair amount of their donations from both police unions and individual police officers. Yeah, and apparently that amount of donations is pretty big. The association's leadership has cultivated a pretty cozy relationship with the police. So, you know, that may explain why they're so reluctant to even look like they might be criticizing the police. And guess what, folks? That's not good enough if they want to keep on going as an organization that actually matters, especially with what they got on their plate right now. The NRA's got to be way more inclusive in their attitude if they want more members. More specifically, they need to reach out to not just cops and not just white females either, but also, and especially, I would say, the brown folks. I'm talking black people, darker-skinned Latino people, you know, people from, from India, Native Americans, and so on. Instead of ignoring Philando Castile like he never existed, stand up for him. And then... Instead of sending Dana Lesh to engage in character assassination against Philando Castile's memory, which is what the NRA did, instead of doing that, get behind Mr. Castile and his family. Demand answers of why the cops shot him when he was doing what the cops said to do. He was complying with the cops' orders. Pursue that. Don't let it go. Keep bringing it up until we get some real answers and some real improvements. And that's the sort of thing they need to be doing a lot more of in defense of gun owners. And that includes when the good guy with a gun is a black man, 
like security guard Jamel Roberson. Oh, but Colleon Noir, Colleon Noir. Well, yeah, yeah, he's out there, and, and that's good. It's, it's good that he's out there. But Colleon Noir ain't enough, folks. You can't just have your onesies and your twosies and say, uh, yeah, yeah, we're good. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. No. The NRA does a good job reaching out to white women. They need to expand that outreach big time to racial minorities as well, and especially to black people. Given the history of gun control in this country, some of which, by the way, the NRA backed, like California's Mulford Act. Yeah, that's the other thing I mean by the the uh, the attitude at the top needing to change. What I mean by cleaning house, and it's got to, because, well, of the second major thing that the NRA really needs to do, and that, folks, is the membership drive. This can be done, and it would get them back on track with plenty of influence in the halls of Congress and the state legislatures. And that could be a very good thing. But they've got to do it right. And that's what we're going to cover when we come back. How to do it right. More to come. Like General MacArthur, we have returned. (laughs) We're now going to cover the second major thing that the NRA needs to do after cleaning house, and that's a membership drive. But for that to work, they've got to do it right. I'm going to describe how that might look. Right now, there are a fair amount of NRA members who are seriously questioning whether to keep giving their hard-earned cash to the association anymore. You know, after the revelations about possible financial funny business at the leadership level? Yeah. Some of those members have actually stopped giving money. Yeah. And that's a problem when you're a nonprofit. If people stop contributing to your organization, what happens to the organization? Exactly. So, the NRA needs new members. Some of the more passionate NRA members have told me repeatedly If you're a gun owner, you really need to join the NRA. Yeah, they're also telling me, you got to support the NRA, especially now when they're in trouble. Well, first, I've seen pictures of the NRA annual conventions. I go to gun shows regularly. I see a few specks of pepper in that sea of salt, but it really is a sea of salt. It doesn't have to be that way because there are a lot of people of color who are gun owners. I know several. You know, heck, I bought a, gu- a gun from one several years ago. Um, it was It's a good gun, too. It's really nice. But that guy is rare at the gun shows, and that guy is also pretty rare at the NRA conventions. They've been rare in any gatherings I've ever seen of NRA members. You know, this is you know, in, to include formal or informal ones. What I am seeing a lot more of, though, are white women. 
And that's good. That's actually a good thing, folks. Yeah. It's just not enough. No, it's not enough. The black Americans and the Native Americans are the most natural allies of the Second Amendment that we could possibly have in this country. And that's for historical reasons. It should be a piece of cake to get them to join the association. Yeah, seriously, it should. If they'd been more welcoming to my dad, he most likely would have been a life member. Yeah, really, I'm serious. Given how many times his gun saved his life, you know, and maybe mine at some point too, for all I know, his membership should have been a gimme. Yeah, a gimme. Well, it can be for other folks. Here's the key. That membership drive needs to happen, not just where white Southerners or white conservatives live, not just in Iowa or New Hampshire, not just in rural Wyoming or Montana or Idaho or the ranch country in Texas, no, but also in Seattle, in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, Austin, Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, even Washington, D.C., heck, New York. Do you know how many new gun owners we got last year, 2020, due to the riots? Do you know how many? I've mentioned it before. It's somewhere around 8 million. This is just based on the, the number of FBI Form 4473 background checks for the year 2020. Yeah, at least 8 million. And that doesn't even count the private face-to-face purchases that we don't know about. Black firearms instructors are talking about how their business has boomed over the last year. You kidding? Black people are flocking to these instructors. By the way, that's a very good thing. I believe in firearms instruction. And I'm really glad to see people getting some training. All all you new gun owners out there, please get some training. It's good for you. I myself have been asked about teaching people how to shoot. And yes, I have done it plenty of times before. People want the tools to defend themselves, folks. They don't want to be legally prevented from having those tools, at least not based on the gun purchases we've seen over the last year. (laughs) East Asian people are buying guns, too, because they're getting physically attacked by racists and accused of, well, you brought that China virus over here. (sighs) Yeah. So there's a clear pool of new potential NRA members ripe for the picking. Seriously, they're ripe for the picking. They're practically on a silver platter. So that membership drive needs to happen where these folks actually live. And it needs to happen over time. This means being in it for the long haul. Don't just show up once or for a week of good behavior and expect magic. No, it doesn't work that way. For all my white conservative brothers and sisters, imagine if the Democratic Party uh, members uh, came up to you and said, hey, okay, we've learned our lesson. Yeah, vote for us. Vote for us. We'll do good by you. Would you believe them? Yeah, that's what I thought. You'd want to see some proof and probably over some years. My liberal friends, my liberal brothers and sisters, if the Republicans came up to you, said the same kind of thing, you know, oh, week of good behavior, you know, we'll come visit you once, maybe twice. Well, we'll, uh, we promise we'll we'll vote for us and we'll do right by you. Would you believe them? That's what I thought. Yeah, you'd want to see the proof too. Well, so do these minority folks about the NRA. They want to see the proof. You know, show me the money. And by money, it means action in this case. What does that mean? It means going to their neighborhoods every so often, regularly, repeatedly, and talking about the right to keep and bear arms and how specifically it applies 
to them. To them. Turns out I'm pretty good at this. Yeah. There was one event a few years ago. I was talking with a bunch of college students. Almost all of them were people of color. Yeah, they range from black to darker-skinned Latino to Arabic. When I got done, they understood. Oh, true, a few of them didn't want to admit that they understood, you know, personal egos and all that, you know, emotional investment. But they did understand, and, and at least half of them directly told me so. See, I explained it in a way that mattered to them. And that's key, folks. If I'd been an NRA staffer, well, that's if I'd been welcome as one, which I wasn't. But if I had been an NRA staffer, I probably could have had a few signups right then and there. And I know for a fact that I planted a seed that day in those college kids. Now, I could do that because I happen to know the concerns. I've lived some of them. A lot of NRA staffers don't know what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes, especially a racial minorities. And I know that from, well, talking to those NRA staffers. <laughs> It's pretty obvious. What does that mean? That means during this membership drive, you've got to do a lot of listening. A lot of listening. I don't mean just hearing. No, I mean listening. And you've got to learn from that listening. That's what I've done. So I'm proof that this can happen. It can be done. I'm living proof. Here's how I'd start out. I'd start out with the training courses, you know, something nonpartisan like that. Like I said earlier, the NRA's firearms education courses really are good. I can't recommend them enough. The basic pistol course, that's what got me started. Well, that and that and plenty of practice at the range, that made me a better handgun marksman than a lot of police officers that I've met. Yeah, it's true. The basic rifle course, which I've also taken, that gave me the fundamentals of riflemanship. From there, I continued on, and, well, now I'm actually pretty decent with a rifle today. Yeah, I'm not like a competitive shooter. I'm not even close. I'm I'm not about to win any competitions anytime soon. But guess what? My marksmanship is pretty decent just the same. You know, don't attack my house. You know, there's my rifle right there. (laughs) If you own a handgun, take the basic pistol course. If you own a rifle, take the basic rifle course. That's how the NRA can start making inroads to communities where they haven't generally gotten much membership response. And while that's happening, by the way, while you're, while you're talking about these courses and what they can do, while people are enrolled in these courses and learning from them, you're likely to hear some of the concerns from members of, the, of these communities that they have. Shut up and listen. Do not be stupid and try to shut them down or argue with them or counter what they're saying in any way. Please, for the love of God, do not be that stupid person who does that. Just keep your mouth closed and your ears open and learn. That's your job at this point, to learn. And that's even if you're uncomfortable with what you hear, and you probably will be, even if you're uncomfortable with it. Learn. Listen. Like a former drill sergeant I once knew used to put it, suck it up, buttercup, because ultimately, that's how you're going to get members. And that's the goal here. Remember that. The membership drive. What you learn here is going to help you later getting members. 
And that's really what the NRA needs. And by the way, that's got to be proactively supported at the top by whatever new leadership comes in. They've got to be smart enough to actively support this, not just sit back passively, you know, and send out, you know, envelopes asking for money. No, no, that ain't going to do it. They've got to sell what the association can do for these folks, for these folks. That means not just political lobbying, but the instruction as well, like what we've been talking about. It means uh, actively, not passively, actively backing up gun owners, even when they're black and even when it's one of those regrettable police citizen encounters, which, by the way, is not just a handful like Chris Cox says it is. It's way more than that. I can tell you that from experience. That's got to come from the top, the leadership. And if the leadership does this, if the leadership does it, the new leadership coming in does this, then the association could come back considerably stronger than they are now. Huh. Andrew Cuomo, it would be his worst nightmare. Same with Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer and the other aunties. Yeah. If they do this, if the NRA leadership, the new leadership that I hope comes in, does this, they will be helping a lot more people than they help right now. And that goes a long way toward getting members down the road. Right now, we're seeing a very strong anti-Second Amendment push. But backed by an army of gun owners who are black, Latino, East Asian, Native American, East Indian, and so on, as well as white gun owners, all together, such pushes for more gun control could be beaten back much more easily. True gun safety education. Well, you know, the real thing, not that fake stuff that, you know, the head in the sand. I'm talking about true gun safety education. You'd see that more in schools than we do today. And I mean the true stuff, you know, like we used to do in this country. Our country would thus actually end up a safer place that way as a result. And I would certainly welcome that. I hope you would as well. The NRA really could do a lot of good if they get the will to do so. And I really hope they do. Because, yeah, that would be the kind of NRA that we need. I hope we get to see it. This is Cowboy T signing off. Until next time. Till then, safe shooting. Go to the range and practice. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.